You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. This program originally aired in 2016. Thank you. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. It's a beautiful theater. Really nice. And it was a nice introduction. And it's nice to be in New Hampshire. We have a cabin in New Hampshire. It's on the other side. We're up there with our grandchildren in the summer. And I have to admit, you know, where we are, uh, dare I say it, we overlook Vermont. <laughs> I mean, that's the, uh, and and uh, uh, I've always, I was a great friend. Of, we were great friends, David Souter and I. And uh, so people are saying that. I get this question quite a lot. Do people recognize you? And I answer truthfully, not very often. <laughs> and and uh, when they do, I might be in a restaurant in Washington or someplace, they come up and they always ask me the same question. So of course that leads them to say, what's the question? And the question is always, aren't you just a suitor? <laughs> That's quite true. <laughs> so it is, uh, Thank you for the introduction, too. Amazing. She referred to my book on regulation. I don't expect you to go out and buy my book on regulation. <laughs> it did get a review in the LA Times. This was years ago. This was the review. Um, in Alice in Wonderland, the Dormouse and Alice emerge from the Pool of Tears. The Dormouse begins to read from Hume's History of England. Why are you reading that, says Alice. Well, says the Dormouse, this is the driest thing I know. That was before Breyer wrote this book, he said. <laughs> there we are. So I hope I've stayed away from that. But why did I write this book? I mean, oh, I know there was one other thing that did occur to me in that introduction. They're going to play some music suitable to the evening. What could that be? <laughs> A lullaby to put you to sleep? <laughs> I turn to judge? I mean, all right. But in any case, I enjoyed the music. And if you want proof that music can help, uh, with constitutional law, I hope you have a chance to see Hamilton. I do. It's fabulous. My wife got tickets before they became uh, what they are. Uh, you'll have to wait for a while before you go, but eventually you'll have a chance to see it. And, and it really somehow brings the high school students, the grammar school students, back into a period of time where they suddenly see the ideals. I mean, it isn't true at that time that every Hispanic and black person was treated as an equal citizen, as you might think from the cast of that show. But it was true that the ideals are there in the Declaration of Independence. And it is true that they're there in some of those constitutional provisions. And uh, it was possible to foresee what might happen in that respect. It's a very good show, and I'm so glad that uh, students are coming to that. But I'm talking about the book. What's this book about? I mean, uh, it tells a story, in a sense. When I became a judge of the court 20 years ago, we didn't have very many cases where you really had to look to answer the problem in the case beyond our own shores. We have about 75 cases in the year, and uh, maybe two or three. Well, I've seen a change. So I'd say now 15 or 20 percent answer the problem in the case, you have to look outside, in part, look outside the United States. And I want to show people. I want to show them what those things, what those cases are about. I want to show them what we do. And of course I want people to know what we do. We're not the CIA. You know, it isn't a top secret uh, uh, kind of place. The more people who know what we do, the better. Um, 
and that's why uh, we're open to criticism and believe we are, <laughs> and we are, and we are criticized, that's true. And uh, uh, anyway, that was one reason. And uh, if I have a broader objective in mind, I think it's sort of this. I don't know about you, but sometimes we hear words like uh, globalization or interdependence. And when I hear words like that, we're talking about literature, I think of a great book, uh, The Charter House of Palmer, fabulous book. Stendhal opens this book with his hero, Fabrice Del Dongo, is at Waterloo. And uh, the bullets are back and forth, whizzing past. Uh, the fog of war is everywhere. The Napoleon is going back and forth on his horse. And uh, the hero thinks to himself, Fabrice, he says, uh, you know, he says, something really important is happening here. He says, I wish I knew what it was. And that's sort of the way I feel sometimes when I hear uh, people talking about the changes in the world and interdependence and so forth. So I thought it might help to look, in a sense, through a microscope at one institution and how those big words and what is going on are in detail and specifically with examples changing what we do. And they are. And I'd like people to know that, and I'd like to see them to see the kinds of problems that we face in this area. And there are problems. We'll talk about a few in questions. But, uh, I mean, a major problem. A major problem. This document, the Constitution, gives to the President of the United States and the Congress of the United States the power to decide matters of security. They're supposed to keep us safe. Judges don't know much about that. But we do have a role in protecting basic liberties. So what happens when those two clash? What happens when the president or Congress infringes basic liberties? Hmm. Hmm. For a long time, the judges had the answer to exactly what they should do, namely, nothing. The person who brought that up first, or I don't know if it was first, close to first, Cicero. Cicero invented this phrase, which my Latin teacher would probably turn over in his grave if I tried to pronounce it in Latin. But it was something like, uh, um, arma, decant, leges, sealant, or something, which for years I would translate if I was giving a talk about it. I'd say, when the cannons roar, the laws fall silent. And I did that quite a lot until somebody pointed out that the Romans didn't have cannons. All right, so that, that sort of wrecked that. But none, none, nonetheless, you get the idea. And that's what we followed for a long time. I mean, think of the Alien and Sedition Acts back in the founding of the Republic. John Adams, who was a hero, of course, but he did put quite a few people in jail for what they said. Courts didn't do much. Think of uh, Abraham Lincoln. Civil War, thousands, thousands of people put in prison. Secretary of State calls in the British ambassador. See this bell, he said? I push it, I can put anybody I want in New York in prison. Push it twice, anybody in Indiana. Tell me, he said, does the Queen of England have such power? Mm -hmm. What did the courts do? They did something after the war was over. You see the attitude? 
But where did that attitude lead us? It led us to a lot of suppression of free speech in World War I, and in World War II, it led us to, um, well, 70,000 American citizens of Japanese origin, taken from their homes in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and put in camps. On what basis? None. None, really. Read about it. I mean, people were afraid. I grew up in San Francisco. My parents were in San Francisco, and I can even remember vaguely blackout shades and so forth. In 1942, people were afraid that the Japanese were going to bomb California. And the general thought, let's move anybody who looks Japanese into a camp. Hmm. You know who was for it? Earl Warren. He said it's the worst thing he ever did. You know who was against it? J. Edgar Hoover. Mm -hmm. He said there's no need for it. And there wasn't. And by 1944, Fred Korematsu uh, decides he's not going to go along with this. His parents told him, go along, don't rock the boat. You know, that was the general attitude there. He said, no, I'm an American. They can't do this. And it got to the Supreme Court. Huh. Six to three. In 1944, when there was no risk, no risk, uh, six to three, they upheld it. Why? Because Justice Black said to the conference, somebody has to run this war. Roosevelt or us? And we can't. You see who's saying that? Black, who is a liberal hero, all these people decided Brown versus Board. And what are they talking? Who are they paraphrasing? Cicero. There he is, right in our conference room. Hmm. The dissenters said, don't do it. They were right, proved right. And uh, at the end, uh, in the next war, uh, Korea, the court said that President Truman could not seize the steel mills. During the Korean War, although he did it to keep steel flowing so that it could supply the soldiers, they said, no, you need congressional authorization. You've gone too far. They were striking down a president for having gone too far. Who were they striking down? Roosevelt. It was easy to strike down Roosevelt. He's dead. They were, Harry Truman is the president, and he's unpopular. You see? Easier. Now we're drawing a line. We're getting involved. And now let's go to Guantanamo. And suddenly we have four cases, all of whom are brought by the uh, detainee, and uh, the detainee wins every one of them. The detainee, bin Laden's chauffeur, not the most popular person in the United States, but he won his case against the president or the secretary of defense, the most powerful people in quite a wide area. And what's going on there? We said Congress had gone too far with this law. It's unconstitutional when you try to keep them out of court and so forth and so on. I'll spare you the details. But what's really happening there is uh, what Sandra O'Connor said, and I joined, and she said, uh, the Constitution does not write the president a blank check, not even in wartime. Hmm. Good, I agreed with that. But the problem is the question that will now occur to you. It's already in your mind. If the Constitution does not write the president a blank check, even in wartime, what kind of check does it write? Now do you see the problem? That's a long windup for a short pitch. <laughs> and the pitch is simply that we are in a world where there are security problems. And they're not just national. They're all over the world. There are problems of terrorism. And there are laws quite likely that will be challenged in our court. 
And if we're saying no blank check, we have to decide when yes, when no. And that's not so easy to do, of course, and what I'm arguing here in the book is in order to do that sensibly, we have to know something about this problem of terrorism, and we have to know something about security, and we have to know something about what's going on abroad, and we have to know something about what other countries do. We're not the only democracy in the world. There's a lot we have to know, and that's what I'm trying to illustrate. Now, I can illustrate the same thing in the area of commerce. I can give you case after case where, I mean, you know, a little dull, but nonetheless, a uh, uh, a, a vitamin distributor in Uruguay, you know, sues a vitamin company in Holland. He says the company, the manufacturer, raised prices. And a cartel, where's he suing him? New York City. Why is he suing him in New York City? There are a couple of answers. One possibly is, see, the price of vitamins was so high that he couldn't afford them, and he got so weak he couldn't get all the way, uh, you know. He, but but not, that's a possibility. Another possibility is what's called treble damages under our law. Can he do it or not do it? We have briefs filed from countries all over the world, Japan, France, England, and lawyers in different places giving, our, our giving them uh, their view, and we can't decide the case sensibly without knowing something of those other countries' laws. We have a famous case, Dolly Phil Artiga. Dolly Phil Artiga from Paraguay comes to New York, and she sees and finds in New York a man, also from Paraguay, who in Paraguay tortured her brother to death. And she also found a statue, an old statue, a statute that was written in the 1790s. And it says an alien can sue in a federal court for tort damages caused by a violation of the law of nations. Well, why did they pass that statute in the 1790s? Probably because they were out to get pirates. You see, uh, that was the rule. So this is a seacoast town. I didn't realize, you know, many, I did, but many people are not aware that this beautiful town of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, is actually on the sea. Don't tell them, they'll all come here. I <laughs> absolutely love it. But nonetheless, uh, I see the rule was in the 1790s, you find a pirate, we don't care where he's from, hang him. And when you're hanging him, shake him upside down. All the money that flows out, we will give to the victims. That was basically the theory. I parody it slightly. But it raises the problem of who are today's pirates? Torturers? Well, yeah, the court said yes. And you say, well, that's a statute like any other. Well, not quite. Not quite. Because it opens the court doors wide to a lot of people in different places in the world. And what are the limitations? And indeed, it's hard to decide just where the limits of that kind of statute are. Why? I'll give you one example. Uh, someone brought a case, a victim of apartheid, and said, this defendant had a lot to do with apartheid, and we want damages. And in that case, the government of South Africa, current, filed a brief and said, you know, we want federal judges in the United States to stay out of this. We have our own system. It's called truth and reconciliation. That's the system. We're making it work. We're trying to run our country. Judge, you can't. Don't get into this case. So does apartheid come in or not? What weight do you give to that brief? What does the State Department say? How do we do it? I'm just giving you these as examples. 
There are examples all over the place. And that's what I'm doing here. And uh, I mean, treaties, treaties today, treaties today are somewhat, there are a lot that are quite different from treaties 100 years ago or 50 years ago even. Uh, so we used to be, Japan and the United States agree that. Thailand and the United States agree that. No, no. there are quite a lot today that instead of doing that, they get a group of nations, and the group of nations by treaty or by some other agreement establishes a little bureaucracy. And that little bureaucracy creates rules. And those rules bind people in practice from more than one nation. How many do you think there are? I looked up this up because I was pretty curious, and there was a professor in Italy who studied it, and I sent out research assistants. How many organizations created by treaty or by uh, agreement or by something involving little bureaucracies, see, they can bind citizens or businesses of more than one nation? Now, I can't see you too well, which is unfortunate because I'm not going to get the answer, but if you'd like to raise your hand, I'll at least sense it. How many think? You get the idea, an organization, we're in it by treaty or we're in it by agreement, and they have these people and they meet and they make these rules and it binds more than one nation in practice. How many think there are more than 100? You know, UN, International Trade Organization, that kind of thing. All right, uh, do you think there are more than 100? How many think there are more than 100? All right, more than 500? Yeah, more than, more than 1,000? Right, more than 2,000? Yeah, yeah, there are more than 2,000. Sorry? What did he say? Oh, well, he's on the right track. I'll tell you that. <laughs> he's on the right track. He said, my hand is still up. He's absolutely on the right track. The, the, but, and we belong, the United States, to several hundred, probably close to a thousand. I mean, you've heard of a lot, the, uh, the International Trade Organization, the UN, and so forth. I mean, and maybe you've heard of the uh, Bluefin Whale Commission. I don't know. I hadn't until I read about it, but it's there. And what about the International Olive Oil Council? I don't know how many have heard of that. But, but they are all over the place. But the point is, what's the legal status of these rules? I mean, this is a question that's been answered or tried to answer in Europe, where the German court and the Italian court and the Austrian court all have to decide to what extent their constitutions allow their country to delegate a lot of legislative power to the European Union. Hmm. Hmm. And they all say it's not, you can't do, you can't, you can do it, but not too much. That's basically what they say. Now, they've never found one that was too much, but they all said you can't do it if it's too much, and they have different things there about what's too much. Will we have that kind of problem? Maybe, maybe. By the way, if we do, and if the result is, we haven't had it yet, but if we do, if the result is, that no, Congress can't delegate any of this authority, well then how are we supposed to go about deciding? How? To cooperate with other nations, to solve problems, or try to solve them, or at least make a dent in problems like environment, health, safety, uh, uh, trade, uh, security, uh, all those things that are today more than one uh, involve many nations. How are we to do that? But if the sky's the limit, what happens here with this document where Article I says the legislative power is delegated here, it's vested in a Congress of the United States, not the Bluefin Whale Commission? You see the problem? All right, my, what I'm trying to do is illustrate, and I could spend a long time, but I won't. 
So why, why did I write this? Well, of course, one reason I wrote it is my typical reason for writing something. You, you know, when you write something, you'll see, I think many of you, as you get older, you say, I want to write this down. My problem's writing it, somebody else's is reading it. But uh, you, 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 that's what you feel like. Uh, but I, partly I want continuously, and we all feel that way, all nine of us, we want to explain to people how the court works. We think absolutely that that next generation has to know. And the generation after that, now my grandchildren, they've got to know. Because if they don't know, they won't participate in politics or in government, and that will be just terrible. This document won't work if they don't participate. And so they have to know. That's one reason. A second reason is because there are, is a thought going around uh, in some circles. I'm not criticizing it or not, and it doesn't have much to do with law. It's more politics, so I shouldn't talk about it at all, but let's pretend it's law. And what they say, <laughs> what, 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 what they say is, they say, uh, uh, you know, we don't want you to look abroad. We don't want you to look abroad for anything. This is an American constitution. Get it? And we have certain American values. I was talking to a congressman about this. We were in a kind of public debate, and, and he said that, and I said, I guess you're aiming that at me. And he said, yeah, I was, actually. So I said, well, I, let me tell you why I do it. I do that uh, sometimes refer to what happens abroad, uh, because uh, hey, other people in this world have jobs like mine, judges. They have documents like this one, protecting human rights and uh, uh, democracy, uh, and they have problems like mine. So why don't I read what they say, if they have a similar problem and a similar document? It won't hurt. Uh, you know, I don't have to follow it. So he says, fine, read it. Just don't put it in your opinion. I said, so not knowing when I ought to keep quiet, I then say, well, but there's more than that. There is, uh, uh, there, there is also the fact that there are a lot of new countries. Democracy is a new thing in some places. Uh, they're setting up independent judiciaries to try to safeguard it to some degree. They're doing their best, and they're met with opposition in their legislature. They refer to our cases. If we refer to theirs, they'll have you know, a little more prestige, perhaps, because we're an old court, and, and uh, maybe that'll help them. I just, he says, fine. Write them a letter. Just don't put it in your opinion. So that's who I'm writing for, in part. I want to say to that congressman and, uh, and, uh, that, and others, look, let me tell you what we really do. And when I tell you what we really do, and I, get you, I show you in detail, maybe you will then begin to agree with me that the best way to preserve our American values, the best way to preserve that which is embodied in this document, is to cooperate and know something about what happens abroad. Because after all, if we ignore the rest of the world, the world will go on without us, and they might find solutions or try that will affect us, and they will just affect us in a lot worse ways than if we were involved too. That's a message I'm trying to get across. And of course, I'm also trying to explain what it means to try to solve these problems through a rule of law. Because after all, I know it's self-serving. That's my profession. Uh, but uh, I tell the students at Stanford, I did last, where you know, if you don't follow the rule of law, if you don't try to support that, if you don't explain to people what it's about, you can only have the alternative. And the alternative is pretty bad. Go look at the television set. Go turn it on and see. So we're for that. And on a general level, I'm trying to show uh, what it might mean, at least in part, and I'm trying to show uh, 
uh, what we do, uh, and I'm trying to show that why what we do so much today is not a question of judicial philosophy, not a question of individual judges. It is a question of the state of the world, which is, in fact, forcing upon us the kinds of problems that we're trying to deal with. Thank you. This is working along very well so far. Thank you so much. So Justice Breyer, we so rarely do get a chance to talk to the judge a person, the justice a person. And I want to ask you a personal question at first. You are married to a woman who was born in Great Britain. You uh, studied in Paris. You are one of only 12 foreigners who has been, has been made a member of the Académie des Sciences Morales et Politiques. And you've taught all over the world. You confer with judges all over the world. You're, you're, you're a man of the world. And I'm wondering how that experience has shaped your regard for the relevance of international law. You've certainly done a lot of research. <laughs> but the, the, the this is not my first rodeo. <laughs> well, you have a collar on. Justice Ginsburg has a collar just uh, like that. Can you, you know? not so see a I, I kind of judicial presence? There we are. It's very nice. And, and, uh, <laughs> but it, it isn't just that. I think when I grew up, I grew up in San Francisco. All right, when I grew up, I don't want to date myself, but a real foreign trip was going with my father on the Lark, which was a train that ran to Los Angeles. I did get a scholarship and studied in England. That's true. And um, that was amazing. But today, Take the college students or even the high school students. They've been all over the place. They've never been on the lark. And that's to their disadvantage. I'll tell you, those railroads were great. <laughs> and it was the, so it's, it's a changed world, and they're all over the place. And I did meet my, I probably would not have been married to an English woman if I hadn't studied over there, I guess. But she spent her career uh, working as a clinical psychologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute uh, with children and their families. She was we also have real problems. And I can, uh, I, I come back and say, um, let me tell you, I had a day. She says, let me tell you about my day. Mm. <laughs> and that sort of helps give me perspective. Because problems like that are not just American problems. They're all over the world. And that's true of a lot of things now. Much more, perhaps, than was true. Mm. And uh, there we are. Well, you and Justices Kennedy and uh, Justice John Paul Stevens have cited international conventions, laws, norms, in your opinions. Um, on Kennedy, I'm thinking of regarding the homosexual sex of my um, homosexual sex, Lawrence v. Texas, and then also in the case about execution of minors. To the latter, Justice Antonin Scalia, the late Justice Antonin Scalia responded that the basic premise that American law should conform to the laws of the rest of the world ought to be rejected out of hand. So you are making the case to us about the importance and relevance of international law. How do you talk about it with your fellow justices? If you said it shouldn't be, it's John Marshall, who was a pretty good judge on our court, 
who said international law is our law. And uh, the court regularly uh, cited uh, foreign cases where they were relevant uh, until probably around the 1980s and it became an issue. Uh, so I don't agree with that. But I note that in a couple of the cases uh, that I would talk about, uh, Justice Scalia and I were on the same side the antitrust case. He wrote the securities case where, he, where, where we were considered views and statutes and briefs from all over the world uh, to decide whether an Australian plaintiff who bought stock in an Australian company and an Australian exchange, uh, but that company, he said, had bought a company in Florida. Is this getting complicated enough? And the company in Florida had lied about what it was worth, and can they sue in New York under our law? A tough question. And we had briefs from all over the world, and he referred to those briefs, and he uh, talked about all of the uh, different uh, uh, laws in the different places and so forth. So when you really get into it, see, when the cases you mentioned, they became issues in part because uh, Justice Kennedy did refer to the statutes and constitutions and practices of other countries. Well, but consider the subject matters of those cases. The subject matter was death penalty, gay rights, mm -hmm. and they're pretty controversial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, Joanna, my wife, uh, far be it for me to speculate, but she has told me there is a phenomenon in psychology called displacement. <laughs> and displacement is you're angry at A, so you blame B. So if I want to speculate, I say some of the people who are pretty angry and don't like that opinion are now blaming foreign law, which had virtually nothing to do with it. Well, I don't see anything wrong with referring to a foreign source. Sometimes it's necessary, as I try to describe, and sometimes it's helpful, and sometimes you read something that seems as if it would be relevant there, and it isn't. We read all kinds of things. You have, in your observation, uh, in your own opinion, which you were advised not to do, as we just heard a moment ago when you're in your, in your introduction, in your 2014 dissent, now this was to uphold the new lethal injection protocol in Oklahoma, you made the point that 137 countries, this is 70% of UN member states, have abolished death penalty either formally or in practice. Now, some people have interpreted that as you telegraphing to lawyers that you're ready to hear death penalty cases. Was that your intent? Me personally? That you, you would invite well, it, them to the court. It wasn't that subtle a telegraph. I, I mean, I ended the thing by saying, I think we should hear death penalty cases. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, that is no, no problem about that. But they, so but only they, really astute yeah. court watchers right, got that's very, that one. That's very good. But the, the uh, uh, and, and it's just a good example. You see, I, I did, I usually try to keep my, I do try to keep my opinion short. I try to keep them 10 pages, 15, 20 pages. Well, that one, which was leading up to we ought to reconsider the death penalty, was 46 pages, but who's counting? Now, in those 46 pages were, <laughs> I had quite a number of issues and discussion and argument and so forth. There were probably two or three pages devoted to this and uh, the subject of the, what the foreign countries do. Now, the word in the, in the Constitution is cruel and unusual punishment. And you can go look at all the conventions you want in 1789 and the, what they people said. They didn't tell us whether that word unusual meant unusual in the United States or unusual in the world. They didn't tell us. So three pages, okay. And if, if people want to accept that as a, uh, an additional convincing argument, fine. 
And if they don't, uh, the other 43 pages do what I thought was a pretty good job, but maybe some others thought it wasn't. But uh, that's one. Scalia, Justice Scalia and I were good friends. And uh, we miss him. I miss him. Mm. But you guys and were willing to mix it up publicly. I of know. course. Because, I mean, what, what I thought we'd do sometimes, which I thought was a great thing to do, I really enjoyed it. We went to Lubbock, Texas, for example. And the two of us sat just like we're sitting. And we had a pretty big audience. We had about 1,000 students there. And uh, we would discuss things we agreed upon and what we didn't. And, and I felt it was a good discussion. I, I mean, I, I know what he was worried about with my opinions. He's worried that, that, that uh, someone who looks at law as I do will get into the habit of just doing what he thinks subjectively is good. And I say, no, no, there are all kinds of rules and approaches and so forth that will stop that. And then I worry about uh, uh, that he will be too rigid because he likes rules. And I say, you can't go back and find out about uh, uh, in the history. You can't get the answer to every question. George Washington didn't know about the internet. And you know what he says when what? I say that? What? He said, um, I knew that. <laughs> and so, so, so then, then he says, I'm not saying it solves every problem. This is good, a good, a good uh, story he used to, he'd, tell, he'd say to me. You see, he'd say, it's like the two campers. Uh, the two campers, and one sees the other one putting on his tennis shoes. And he says, running shoes? He says, why are you putting on running shoes? He says, there's a bear coming into the camp. He says, you can't outrun a bear. And he says, yeah, but I can outrun you. <laughs> <laughs> and so we would discuss it, and I think people went away, certainly knowing more about the court, and perhaps, I hope, with a somewhat higher opinion. Because they saw we liked each other, we had lots of agreement, uh, and then on some things we didn't agree. Well, you're talking about uh, when one of the big differences was originalism, and, and publicly you talked about that. Yes. Um, and of course, originalism, you know, this adherence to the original meaning of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, whereas you have said in the past that you look more for values. Which are the original values. Right. The First Amendment is about speech primarily. You know, that part says freedom of speech. Right. Uh, but it's, that's a value because it doesn't, uh, we have to apply it to a world that has an internet. Of course, and he'll, he'll agree with that, but he'll put more weight uh, probably on what the practices were in 1789. Every judge, every judge who is trying to decide what some language means in a document will read the language. They will look at the text. They will look at the history. They will look at the traditions. If it's habeas corpus, what's the tradition behind that? What does that mean? They will look at the precedent. They will look at the purposes or the values, and they will look at the consequences. So you have text, history, tradition, precedent, purposes, or values, and uh, consequences. Not any consequence, but consequences related to that particular, uh, uh, related to that particular uh, set of words. Uh, I mean, the Fourth Amendment's about, say, reasonable searches, it's not about speech, and First mm -hmm. Amendment's about speech, so speech-related consequences are likely what's relevant. But the, the uh, point is, we all use those tools. Everybody does. Some judges put more weight on the first four. You see, text, history, tradition, precedent. Some put more weight on the last two, purposes and consequences. I probably put more weight on the last two, because I think the first four often don't solve the problem. Not always, but often don't. But how did, and he you, puts arrive, more weight. How did you arrive at that approach? Why, how did that come into your thinking? Oh, that's a good question. 
That's good because what I, what I think is, I mean, what I've talked about those six things and put it where you put weight and their questions of degree were not, 50% of our cases are unanimous. But why in those, say, 20% where we're 5-4, and let's say half of that where we're on different sides, because they're not all the same 5 and 4, where are we coming from? It's not politics. I mean, it isn't, I mean, politics, I did work for Senator Kennedy. Mm -hmm. and, and politics meant, you know, where are the votes? Who's popular? I don't find that in the court. I really do not. It, politics, well, you may be ideology. No, right. ideology, no, it's not ideology. But it, is it not ideology? If you're talking about 50% of the cases, you're unanimous, right? Yeah. But it's the other cases, and those are often the social issue cases, the hot-button social issues. And people can generally predict where the justices are going to come yeah, down on that. Yeah, that's true. So is that not a sort of ideological bent, that no. we know the ideological no. bent? Yes and no. Here's the no. The no is, if I think I'm deciding this because I'm an Adam Smith free enterpriser or because I'm a Marxist Maoist troublemaker, I mean, that I know I'm doing the wrong thing. But what is true, insofar as it's a yes, I am the person I am. We all are at a certain age. I did grow up in San Francisco in the 50s. I did go to Lowell High School, public school. I did lead the life I've had. And every one of us, by the time we're in our 50s or so, we have views about our profession at a very abstract level. Uh, how, what's this document about? What, what is law about? How does it relate to people? What's the country about? I don't have precise answers to those questions, but you will, in whatever profession you are in, will in fact begin to sort of have basic views or jurisprudential approaches or whatever applies to your own profession. That can differ. Uh, Nino Scalia was very happy with clear rules and he tried to push everything into a clear rule. I tend to approach things thinking life is a sort of a mess and uh, you're not gonna get clear anything and uh, try, but nonetheless be careful of going too far with a rule or life will come back and hit you in the face. Now, I'm more comfortable with the latter than he was. And I'm less comfortable, you see, he's more comfortable with the former. Lots of our differences can be explained in that way. I used to think, why doesn't everybody agree with me? How awful. <laughs> then I began to think, which is perhaps a slightly more mature view, uh, this is a big country. There are 320 million people. And uh, they think all kinds of different things. And it is not such a terrible thing if on the Supreme Court of the United States there are people who have sort of basic different approaches to some of the questions. You're listening to a conversation with Justice Stephen Breyer, recorded live at the Historic Theater at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. Here's a question from the um, audience, and we have a number from law students, so I'll try to get to as many of these as possible. But this person writes, as a young attorney, I'm a bit disheartened by the current legal and political climate of distrust and partisanship and sometimes pure hatred. What can the legal community and the general public do to remain optimistic and hopeful for a brighter and more just future? Yeah, they can do a lot, a lot in my opinion. And ask anyone in public life, I don't care what branch there is, and I think you won't have to probe too deeply before you'll get a similar response. Look, this document does not tell people what to do. What this document does is, by and large, create outlines or boundaries upon the decisions that the public makes democratically for themselves through elections and through democratic processes. 
Now, if you look at this as a boundary, I used to listen to that at the, uh, when I was a child, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. He was the border patrol. He was up in the north of Canada. Cold up there and uh, difficult. There are many boundary cases that are difficult. Uh, is abortion inside or outside? What about prayer in schools? But don't make the mistake of thinking because of boundary definitions being sometimes very difficult with lots to be said on both sides. Don't forget about the space between. And that space between is filled with democratic decision making. And that's what this document expects. Now what I say to the high school students, what I say to the high school students is you have to participate. I can't tell you how to lead your life. I say this a lot. I say to them, I can't tell you. I hope you have a nice life. I hope you find someone to love. I hope you have a good career. And I hope you participate in politics or the library board or the school board or the park or anything you want as long as it belongs to your community. Because I can't tell you to do it. But I can tell you, in my experience, if you don't do it, this document won't work. Oh, it's true. So the law student who says that, I say, hey, you and the lawyers and the judges, you get out there and talk to the newspapers, the editorial board, and on law day, give a talk at the local high school and tell them what you do and tell them what law is about and tell them what the Constitution is about. And the, the thing that I think everybody thinks down in Washington, and I do think they think this, civics in the high schools. So they understand. Here's an interesting question from the audience. There are countries which do not have a constitution. Israel, New Zealand, the United Kingdom of Great Britain, and Northern Ireland, for example. What are the advantages for a country not to have a constitution? I, I amend the question with one word. Uh, they did not, for a long time, have a written constitution. But the movement is in the direction of a written constitution. It's, Israel, for example, has a basic law which has been interpreted by their Supreme Court to uh, protect basic democracy and basic human rights. And of course, the legislature could change it, but they don't. They could change it in Canada under some circumstances. They could change it in New Zealand under some circumstances, but they don't. And Britain has incorporated into its own law the European Charter of Human Rights, which is a set of basic rights interpreted by a court in Strasbourg. So you can have a constitution that wasn't a written constitution. And for many years, that was Great Britain. And now it's moved in a written direction. But what matters are the basic values that are protected. And judges are one way of trying you know, to protect, to keep stable uh, th those basic values. I'm going to go back to that sort of point about the borderless world that we live in. And you talked earlier about the relative deference of the court to executive powers during the wars. Well, now, of course, we're fighting the war on terror. There is no fixed end date. There, uh, the enemy is amorphous, borderless, and, you know, attacks in many different places under many different circumstances. So now, what is the role for the court to protect 
our civil liberties, those designated to us by the Constitution, and balance that with national security. Yeah, well, I, I, there, what I'll say is we should know about what goes on elsewhere. It sometimes will prove relevant, it sometimes won't. I mean, mostly what judges do is not issue grand statements. I mean, sometimes a case bring, leads to that result. I mean, there won't be any more legal segregation in the United States. That was Brown versus Board. That was a pretty grand and important statement. But most of our work is we're sitting there with detailed cases, and uh, we're trying as a matter of detail. And I'm saying a lot of these cases, even including those involving security versus civil liberties, it will be helpful to know the scope of the problem and how other countries deal with it. And uh, what we have to do is develop, uh, find ways of, of doing that. The lawyers will help us. But that's a lot of work. That's a lot of understanding. You have to have a depth and breadth of knowledge of how technology works, how other state systems work. And I'm wondering how you and you know law students of the future are going to manage that. How do you? The same uh, way we manage anything else, we don't. We don't know it. I mean, take a copyright case. We had a uh, uh, student from Thailand. Oh, right. Yeah, a student Kurt from Thailand. Kurtzang. Yeah, Kurtzang, right. He's at Cornell. He discovers his textbooks are cheaper in Thailand. Uh, he sends his, does his parents send me a few. They sent more than a few. He made a little profit. And uh, the publisher got annoyed and um, sued him. And it comes up to our court. And the question is whether some very obscure words in a statute say he can do it or he can't do it. Absolutely obscure. But the point I'm trying to make is the way we learn about this. The same way we learn about anything. I go back to my office, there's a stack of briefs like this. And they're followed by lawyers, all, filed by lawyers from all over the world, really, on that one. I couldn't figure out why there were so many until I read that it said copyright today is not just a question of uh, books or not even books, music, film. It's also, you buy a car. Software is copyrighted. Cars filled with software. Going to a store, everything has a label. Labels are typically copyrighted. And what the bottom line is in that brief is that your decision in this case will affect $3.2 trillion worth of commerce. Yeah, that's why there are all those briefs. And uh, uh, even today, $3.2 trillion is a lot of money. And um, uh, well, yeah, so what, what do we get? The same thing that we have in most cases. It's the job of the lawyers to educate us. And they do, opposite directions, but they do it. And uh, uh, when we have, an, uh, we had at one point, we set up, they set up in the library, uh, uh, an internet thing which we needed to know about for the case, and we're brought in there and we're told about it. And uh, we don't always get those things right, but I mean, and I'm sorry that we don't, but I mean, imagine a 5-4 case. Somebody's wrong. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, so so there, there, there are ways of doing this, and that's really most of our job. And uh, uh, that's why I, I say on these matters, we can in the court indicate that we're willing and interested in what happens abroad. And there's only a limited amount that's relevant. But once that's indicated, I mean, we are a three-part profession. There are the judges and the lawyers and the law professors. And the lawyers have to tell us what's going on that's relevant. And they can do that only if the law professors have in fact told them how to do that when they were law students. 
And so it's, it's circular. Normally what happens? We make a decision. The law professor writes an article saying how wrong it is. At that point, the lawyers read the different articles. See, the professors see the whole picture or a bigger picture. And uh, then the lawyers will read it and they'll transmit to us uh, uh, what favors them and, and we'll learn more that way. And uh, then we hope we write a better decision. You see, in this, over this, over here, as this changes. That's what the profession is like, those three parts, when it's working well. And that's what I want it to work well. Well, that's also to... a case where there's a United States company publisher suing a, chi uh, uh, sorry, a student who's, who is violating copyright by selling in Thailand. But no, there we are held other he wasn't. Sort of, uh, okay, you did, you're right, because of first <laughs> I wrote sale. the opinion, that's how I'm very familiar with it. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, I'm thinking of, um, but in other cases, and we have a couple of questions about this one in particular, that this week the Congress decided, made a decision to override the president's veto against a bill that would allow families of victims of 9-11 to sue Saudi Arabia. Um, and I'm wondering for you, you know, someone who's observing international law and statute and the limits of international sta or American statute, what do you think when you're considering a law like that? What comes up for you? Well, we're not considering it at the moment. And if it comes up, uh, then we'll, as I said, we'll go through this process. And of course, you would like me to say something about the merits of that law, which I will be very careful not to do. <laughs> and the, the, I tried. The, <laughs> I mean, what else am I going to say? <laughs> you know, I can go on for quite a long time. <laughs> but the point is, why is it? Now, that's rather an interesting question itself. Why is it that there's an ethical prohibition, really, about my talking about cases that might come up? Yeah. And there's a good reason for Well, that. actually, I'm, uh, not about, you can talk about that, cases that might come mm -hmm. up, but I'm, I'm thinking of, as you're looking at the world today and what's going on in Congress, in the, another branch, um, and what is not going on in Congress, for example, there are a number of questions here about the fact that the Senate has refused to take up Merrick Garland's nomination, or the nomination of Merrick Garland as a Supreme Court Justice. So how does that affect your job? You're working in a system of checks and balances. How has that affected our job? I, you know, I was actually, look, I looked at the numbers, and uh, you can draw your own conclusions. The, the court had six members when it started for a period of years. After the Civil War, it had ten members, uh, and it functioned. Uh, we had, uh, we have eight, uh, and maybe people try a little harder to get together, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Of the 75 cases last year, four were 4-4, four, four. and two of them were the kind of thing you'd read on the front page, and two of them you'd never read about in the newspaper. And what you read about in the front page is not necessarily the most important. I mean, I wrote a, uh, we all worked on a, a case involving ERISA, the pension law, and that is so technical as to be beyond belief. But it does affect people's pensions and has a major impact. The press will probably not write about that. It's very technical. But they will write about some you know, picture on the internet which maybe doesn't affect so many people. But it's more interesting for the readers. And so you can't con draw too much of a conclusion. You can draw some conclusion. I mean, I grant you that cases that are, have social impact or political impact are more likely to be written about and people are more interested in them and they are often very important. But anyway, uh, we do other things too and uh, for most of the time, most of the time we're in agreement and we were 4-4 four, four in four cases out of about 70 some odd cases. 
Now, you can draw whatever conclusions you want from that. But you see, since I know it's a big political issue, I'm saying nothing. <laughs> okay, this is a question from a time traveler. Yes. If you could travel back to any other court, which one and why? Oh, you mean in uh, American, mm -hmm. you in the Supreme Court? Yeah. Yeah, there are so many uh, interesting. Would it be easier to answer if you could have been involved in any decision, which one would you have wanted to be involved with? Well, of course, the great decision of, is Brown versus Board. I mean, that, that was very hard to bring about, uh, not in the court. And the reason that it was so hard to get the court to say equal protection of the law means equal protection of the law is because people were afraid. Read Holmes. He was afraid they would say it and nobody would do it. That's what they were afraid of. And then finally, after World War II, they said it. And now think of how long it took before that legal uh, apparatus that supported segregation in much of the country was dismantled. And it isn't perfectly, I mean, we all know, it isn't perfect today by any means. But the legal part, the legal part's dismantled. No, uh, pretty much. But think of what people went through for that. After 1954, what happened? Nothing. 55, nothing. 56, next to nothing. 57, a judge in Little Rock says integrate Central High School. Now some of us can remember that. Little Rock, Little Rock 9, brave, black, trying to enter a white school with a court order. Governor Falbus is standing in the doorway, in effect, and says maybe they have a court order, but I have the state militia. White Citizens Council surrounding the school, the picture of Elizabeth Eckford, a black girl walking off and reading her book, and white girl behind her, her face contorted with rage. Is that? The world saw that. And the Senate, uh, President Eisenhower met with, uh, met with uh, Governor Falbus, and Falbus said, I'll, I'll integrate Central High, and, and then he walked out and told the press he wouldn't. And Eisenhower was pretty annoyed. Uh, Jimmy Burns, governor, moderate on race, governor of South Carolina, says to President Eisenhower, if you send troops, you will have to occupy the entire South. Do you want a second reconstruction? But Herbert Brownell, his wise counselor, attorney general, said you have to do something. And Eisenhower ordered the 101st Airborne. Oh, in 1957, everyone knew who they were. They were the heroes of D-Day. They'd been hung up on the steeples and shot down. They were the heroes of the Battle of the Bulge. They fly to Little Rock and take those children and walk them into the school. Now, that was a great day for the rule of law. And it was a great day for the country. Uh, fabulous. But within a few months, they'd closed the school. Mm -hmm. Just what Jimmy Byrne said. And this time, the Supreme Court said, well, the Supreme, they wanted to do it. The Supreme Court well, unanimously said, no, you've got to integrate. And the day after that opinion came down, Cooper versus Aaron, the governor closed the school. And read about what happened to those children, black and white. Not great. And, uh, but it was too late. You see, it was too late. It was um, <laughs> Martin Luther King. 
the Freedom Riders. The whole country had gotten involved. And that was a time when I was clerking, 1964, later, to little, but it was still going on. You see, and my, my point there is that the whole country, or not the whole country, but a lot of people who were not lawyers and not judges had to get involved. And that's what I say. I said that to the president of the court of Ghana, a woman who's trying to bring more human right protection and democracy there. She says, why do people do what you say? Ha ha, good question. <laughs> I say it's 200 years of history. It's not just some words written on paper. And what you have to do, and we had a civil war, we had 80 years of Jim Crow, I mean, we've had all kinds of stuff and things, and not always good. We've had our ups and downs. And, and uh, now, people pretty much do it. But they have to learn, the next generations. You see the point? Yes. So I say talk to those. 319 million out of 320 million Americans are not lawyers. And they're the ones who have to support this. And it requires quite a lot of doing. Now do you see how I feel about teaching I the <laughs> high school students? I feel yeah, you're right. <laughs> I might have paid a lot more attention if I had had a teacher who presented it like that, I have to say. Um, we, we're going to run out of time, so I just want to ask you a couple of questions, a little bit about what you do, what goes on at the court, and we'll have to wrap. Um, but I'm thinking, when you go out there for oral arguments, right, do, do, you, do you have in your mind what you want to test out? I mean, we've, we've all heard the, well, actually, this is what I've noticed. Remarkably, in oral arguments, every single justice sounds exactly like Nina Totenberg. She's very good at that. <laughs> She's very good. I mean, she has a talent for capturing in two or three sentences uh, what... Uh, uh, She's really good. Yeah, what, what judges are saying and what the point of what they're saying or but, asking But do, you, do oral arguments make... I mean, it seems to me that the judges are sort of talking to each other. You know, Sometimes. that you're testing out things with each other. Sometimes. But does a great oral argument, does the lawyer, does the delivery really make a huge difference? The delivery? Yeah. I doubt it. No? The lawyers think it does. I hope it doesn't. We're not there to say who's the best lawyer. We're there to decide what the law ought to be. And then and you guys... In, in a difficult case. In a you, difficult case where there are good arguments on both sides. But in those difficult cases, like... And, and have you wrestled with... Have you, have you absolutely been agonized over a case ever? Sure. We're, I mean, but, you know, you don't go around saying, oh, it's the job. <laughs> I mean, you, you have the, the, uh, what, what we do, the way we, I, we, we receive briefs, as I said. There'll be a blue brief for uh, the petitioner's side and a red brief for the other side. I don't know why they call them briefs. They're not that brief. But, uh, but the uh, yellow one, uh, the reply, and then anyone can file a light green for the petitioner, any group, and dark green for the uh, respondent, and gray if you're the government. The government's always gray. And... and uh, <laughs> I get a stack, maybe 12, 15, 20 briefs, and sometimes 100, as in, for example, the affirmative action cases, but normally. All right, so I take the 12 cases that they're going to be oral argument in two-week bits. I take, there will be probably 10 to 12 cases, and I read those briefs. And I divide them among my law clerks and say, you read three, and you better know it four times better than me. And then... Uh, I'll talk to them beforehand, and they'll write a memo on things I want to know, and they can put in anything else they want. So before that oral argument, I've read the briefs. I've had one or two discussions with my law clerks, and they've written a memo on points I wanted explored. All right? Everyone does something like that. So when we're out there with the oral argument, 
We think, what? We think we know the case. Now, do we have a preconceived idea? Of course. When I see the question, I have a preconceived idea. This is the question in the case. I know who's right. Then I read the blue brief. Of course, they're right. Then I read the bread brief. Oh, oh. And that's how it works. You get there in the oral argument, I know who's right. Oh. Being open-minded, I think, in every profession, really, is not that you go in without an idea. You know where you're going, but you're ready to change. Once you take in information that changes that mind, you don't resist it. Rather, you listen. And gradually, what's happening, by the end of the oral argument, people say, does it change your mind? I'd say completely, maybe 5% of the time. Uh, does it change how I look at the case? Much more often. Does it matter how you look at it? Absolutely. Why? Because that opinion, it's not just the result. It's the words that are in it. So after the oral argument, we'll be within a couple of days, we'll be in our conference room. We're there by ourselves. We're on a big table. We each have a book for each case, which has the name of each justice and space to write. The Chief Justice says, this is the issue in the case. This is what I'm thinking, maybe five or 10 minutes. And then it would go to Justice Scalia, Justice Kennedy, Justice Thomas, Justice Ginsburg, me, Justice, Sotomayor, uh, Justice Alito, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan. Nobody speaks twice till everybody speaks once. A very good rule for a small group. Everybody thinks he's been treated fairly. And then there's some back and forth. But if the back and forth is, I have a better argument than you, ha, 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 that will get you nowhere. Someone on the other side who has a different approach will say, I have a better argument than you. But if you're listening to what the other person says, and you think you have something to contribute to that thought, uh, then things might be different. And everyone knows that. And sometimes we'll have a f very fruitful discussion, and it might change people's minds, and, and uh, sometimes it won't be so fruitful. Uh, but at the end of that, you know where it's breaking out. And the Chief Justice, if he's in the majority or a senior, will assign the case. Everyone writes one, then everyone writes two, then everyone writes three. It's a fairly mechanical. But if it's given to me, I already said what I do. My law clerk produces something like this. I take that. I go get the briefs, uh, those I think are good briefs, and I sit down at the word processor, and I write my draft back to the law clerk. She thinks hers was better. Uh, nonetheless, uh, <laughs> there we are. And uh, uh, she goes over it. I probably do another draft from scratch very often. And then she goes back, and we'll go back and forth, and, and uh, eventually we circulate. And uh, when we circulate, I want four others to join it at least. I'm hoping for everybody, but I'll settle for five. And uh, someone might write a dissent, and things can switch. Sometimes the whole court flips. But more often, it stays roughly the same, but people have suggestions, changes. They want this or that and modified. Eventually, everybody's written or said whatever he wants uh, or joined, and it comes out. That's the mechanics. So I told my son. What I do, I read and I write. I said, you do your homework really well, you get a job, you can do homework the whole rest of your life. <laughs> well, before we thank you, Stephen Breyer, we have a load of people to thank for putting together this wonderful production of Writers on a New England Stage. The Music Hall executive producer is Patricia Lynch. The Music Hall producer is Margaret Talcott. NHPR's president is Betsy Gardella. Our producer for NHPR tonight is Molly Donahue. The public radio NPR 
Digital producer is Sarah Plord. Music Hall production manager is Jana Morris. The Music Hall live sound and recording engineer is Ian Martin, the fabulous band and music director Bob Lord and Dreadnought. Live stage photography by David J. Murray will be available on cleariphoto.com in just a couple of days. I'm Virginia Prescott. Please do join me in warmly thanking Stephen Breyer. Where do we go?